Hello and welcome to the Wild Enrichment Podcast. My name is Kyle Banton-Jones and I'll be your host. The Wild Enrichment Podcast is a show about animal welfare, training, enrichment, and everything in between. Each episode, we will be exploring concepts surrounding behavioral husbandry and the ever-advancing field of animal welfare, from interviews with real animal care professionals to educational episodes about new concepts in animal care. This is the Wild Enrichment Podcast. Enjoy. Okay, hello everybody and welcome back to the Wild Enrichment Podcast. Uh, Today we are joined with uh, Jerry Crichton and uh, he's joining us all the way from Dublin, Ireland, uh, where he just uh, released his new book, Raised by the Zoo. Uh, So we're super excited to talk about the book and your sort of life as a zookeeper. Jerry, thank you so much for uh, joining us. Kyle, it's been a a wonderful opportunity and and, and thank you for the, the, uh, the chance to talk about my life and my book it's um it's certainly been an interesting zoo life that's for sure i uh, i was a second generation zookeeper or i am a second generation zookeeper um my father jerry creighton senior you know it was, it was general curator at the dublin zoo having worked his way up from from uh, a lion keeper um i was also pretty much similar in, in a similar pathway i i started off at the zoo getting paid when i was 15 years old as a pony boy working oh, yeah. with ponies and working in the family, what we call the pet's corner is where they kept domestic animals or sick animals. And mm. uh, it was always a brilliant spawning ground for future keepers because you could see the young keepers that were in there or the, or the young people that were learning with chickens and pigs and, you know, safer, safer animals. And you could see their aptitude and, and their ability. And it, it, it proved to be a really successful place in Dublin Zoo, many, many keepers passed through the pet's corner and many, you know, not only me, there was other families there, the Clark family, the O'Connor family that were where that produced second generation keepers. So it, it's been, you know, an incredibly inspiring place for me. Uh, as I say, I remember vividly as four or five year old boy going up to the zoo at my father. And um, what we called was the old lion house. And it, you know, probably if, if people can remember the old big cat house in Philadelphia Zoo, which has been well kind of documented mm-hmm. in pictures, it was the same idea. These big, you know, just steel bars and, and, and uh, tiled back back walls that were, you know, sterile for cleaning and, mm-hmm. and you know, this wooden floors. But the smell of urine when you'd walk in in the morning and your eyes would, mm-hmm. as a young boy, would feel like you were crying with the ammonia. But, you know, I remember being so inspired by by the power and the energy that the big cats generated. And, mm. you know, I, I, I couldn't wait to to get out of the zoo. I got out of school to get to the zoo every day. Lucky enough, we lived in, in the neighborhood and it was very close to the zoo. So I was, you know, I was a young boy going up there at, you know, five, six, seven, eight, you know, thinking I was Tarzan. Running around the zoo, you felt like you were so free, but obviously you were in a, a, a space that you were safe. And all the keepers used to look out for each other's kids. Mm. And at weekends, we'd go up together and have our own little kind of mini keeper club. So it was really, really exciting. And, and there was a lot of knowledge and a lot of, you know, uh, information gathered from such a young age. And, yeah. you know, it, it was great to have that long association with the zoo like between myself, my father, my brother, who also worked as a, a gorilla keeper. We had over 100 years service with the oh, zoo. Wow. So it it's impressive it's impressive get you know when you think of it and then so you know what happened then was i worked up through the rankings um i evolved as dublin zoo evolved 
Dublin Zoo is the third oldest zoo in the world. Hmm. When um when we were there in the eighties, uh, when I started off as a young young keeper, it, it was it was uh it was looking like what a bankrupt zoo. It was hmm. an old Victorian zoo with a lot of structural and and husbandry problems. It needed help. It needed assistance. And it kind of started a transformation. There was a director then, there then called Peter Wilson. And uh, he basically had to save the zoo. And he, he went to the government of Ireland and said, listen, you know, the zoo, it's here since 1831. And the people love it. And they did. It was very f- affectionate. And it was it's well established within the fabric of Irish society. That, you know, a day out, day out at Dublin Zoo was uh, a very important annual event for families. But, you know, we, we were starting to get criticism, and correctly, and rightly so. We were getting criticism for our, our monkey house, our big cat houses, mm. our polar bears was a typical classic bear pit. And we needed to reinvent and reevaluate. And it started a process of us approaching the government. The government said, okay, let's go back to the people. They asked the people of Ireland, do you want a zoo? They said, absolutely, we don't want our zoo going. So the government then... Um, decided okay let's fix the zoo let's help it you know let, let you know, they, they realized you know even at the time like the, the zoo has now with a population of five million people in ireland we have 1.2 million people a year to go to wow. Dublin zoo which is astonishing yeah now back in the back then in the 80s it was three or four hundred thousand but you know now um dublin zoo is right up there with you know i travel a lot obviously we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that as my consultancy role and how i got to that point but i travel to a lot of zoos around the world and, and dublin zoo is a very very beautiful zoo and where and not only you know cosmetically beautiful it's it's, it's beautiful in many for many many reasons um you know in ireland we don't get an extreme climate of hot or cold you can you can grow a lot of really nice plantations and plants and, and uh, over the course of the calendar year. So the zoo is generally always looks green and alive. And the habitats, um, the habitats are, are, are so specific to the uh, animal needs. You know, the, the biology of the animal is, is, is the key component to anything that we've designed over the last 20 years. And mm. like our gorilla, our gorilla habitat, to just give you an example, 15,000 plants, over 200 different species, all edible for the gorillas. They fluctuate mm. and grow at certain times of the year. They've natural trees. There's a clear absence of concrete, semrock type um, structures, false synthetic structures, natural trees, natural substrates, and uh, to create proper little bioclimatic zones. Like we have mm. water where you know animals can come into the area, um, ducks and land and. The gorillas are, uh, and that's just one of them. So it, it is right up there with, with, with the top zoos in the world. And, you know, as I say, my my then, my then life as a keeper has evolved alongside the zoo. As I mentioned, I was a, I was a young keeper uh, working under the guidance of my dad. And then um, I also became a team leader of a section of the area, which was the elephants, uh, the big cats, the large apes and primates. So uh, that was the core of the animals that I looked after. So I have a lot of experience for many, many species. But I remember, like, you know, in Dublin Zoo, uh, it's many years ago, but we two old Asian elephants, uh, Judy and Kirsty, and, and again, the house had been built in the 1950s. You know, really, really poor, bitumen floor, you know, no natural light. 
devoid of any proper stimulus. Mm. And I used to go in in the morning and, and, you know, you'd be sharing the same space with the elephants then. And Kirsty, one of them particularly, uh, she'd be she'd shy away because she had such a fear of the ankus or the hook. Mm. Well, that used to make me feel incredibly uneasy. And I know, you know, I've worked both free contact and protected contact. And I know what's best for the elephant. And that's protected contact. And I used to kill me, you know, and, and really upset me that when Kirsty heard that key click in the morning, that she was already in that defensive mechanism that understanding that you know there's a consequence if i don't conform today and that really was very uneasy with me coil and there's no animal in any environment in human care should feel under that kind of threat mm. unfortunately mm-hmm. the elephants elephants still do in many parts of the world but um you know that 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 said about uh you know a tall process of change um when the director came in in 2003 leo Ustavegel, uh very visionary director a uh, great man. Um, he had worked in Melbourne Zoo and had, you know, various other zoos and had international experience. And he came up as a keeper, which I always like a director that works mm. as a keeper yeah. and comes from the top because they, they they know what it's like at the ground level. And I think they have a greater understanding for the efforts of the team at, at, at that level. And Leo had a lot of experience. And, you know, he, he one of the things he wanted to change was the elephants. Um, you know, with us talking to him, Let's change the elephants, and um, that set us on a real, jo- jo- you know, v- journey of discovery. And uh, we had Alan Rucroft, who's a well-known elephant consultant, and has mm. been a friend of mine over the last two decades or more, and an, a great mentor. We brought Alan in. We brought in Jones and Jones, who are very well-known zoo architects. They were based in Seattle. Um, they've done a lot of work in zoos across the U.S. And we sat around the table. Jerry Creighton Sr., Paul O'Donoghue, another uh, the assistant director, and we say, okay, what do we want for, for these elephants? And, you know, we didn't want, because some other zoo had 400 feet, we wanted 500 feet. Mm. We didn't want to just, you, we, there was nothing really out there to, to, to uh, stimulate us or to inspire us in terms of maybe we need to copy that. So we went back to the Kaziranga National Park in India, and looked at you know the, the the ecology, the biology, how elephants interact with the environment, the social groupings, how they live, how they function, how they feed over a 24-hour period, and we came up with a very definite wish list of how, what, and what we wanted to see, and it was to create a habitat where elephants had autonomy, independence, choice, opportunity, control over their own day. No more mm. being locked in at five o'clock in the evening and the keeper turned away and the food gone after two or three hours and they stand and rocking from side to side wondering when the keeper would be in again to feed him. Mm. We, 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 we changed all that site, you know, where we, we created habitats that have destinations, resourceful movement, elephants moving with purpose, elephants moving because they have these incredible opportunities to interact with natural substrates around them with mud wallows, with overhead feeders, with timed feed boxes. Everything had a purpose that was exactly reflecting how elephants live in the wild. And we've done some incredible studies to, to, to back up what we were doing. We've done locomotion studies. We've done sleep studies. We've done foraging studies. Now, it's not the wild, but we all know the consequences for elephants and animals in the wild anyway. Yeah. But we, we showed a very, very definite um, pattern of behavior and life that was comparable to wild elephants. 
Yeah. And for me, that was very, very special. And what, what, I, what I try to promote today when I work um, as a consultant now, I left Dublin Zoo in my capacity as operations manager about just over nearly three years ago now. And um, I was at that crossroads. I, I, was, I was in charge of the whole zoo and, you know, making a big difference and having a great input into what, you know, what I consider to be a world-class zoo and many others. But uh, the elephants, I was going to many, many zoos around the world and, and many places were asking me to come and give talks and advice. And it was evident that, you know, there was still a lot of work that needed to be done to promote optimal, optimal elephant care and wellness around the world. Some great people doing it. Alan Rucroft being definitely one that has been very inspiring for many zoos. But, you know, there was still more that needed to be done. And we needed, you know, a voice for the elephants too. People there, more people out there saying what needed to happen. And, and you know, I went to many zoos in America. I worked with the Cincinnati Zoo, Birmingham Zoo, Alabama, the Tennessee Sanctuary. Oregon Zoo brought me out and um, before they built their new area, which is which is fabulous and world-class, um, to, to advise and work with the team. And But that was all under Dublin Zoo. So... I said, you know, it was a bit of a stretch for the zoo to keep sending me away when I was in charge of the zoo. And mm. then I was getting a lot more zoos saying, Jerry, we love your philosophy. We love your way of thinking. Um, can you come and help us? So between COVID and various other uh, issues, I decided now is the time to, to set up my own company. And that's Global Elephant Care. And uh, the phone hasn't stopped ringing. Um, I, I've been, I've, I'm working in some amazing projects globally around the world for elephants. A couple of them are, um, just to give examples, I'm working with the Howlett's Wild Animal Park in the UK and um, training elephants for crate uh, travel crate desensitization. And uh, we now have 13 elephants that will walk in and out of crates with the gate closing, preparing them psychologically and physically for this journey back to Africa. And it's a world first. And um, they will go hopefully to Kenya and the Shimba Hills uh, oh, wow. Obviously, they're not going to be just dropped into Africa. They'll go into a reserve yeah. for um, a long time, you know, as long as it takes for them to to adjust to to the environment and the food and everything else. But the planning has gone in, has been, you know, incredible. The the detail has been incredible, and to be in charge and to be managing the, this this elephant transportation and training, uh, it's a world first. You know, it's a world first, and. Uh, if this happens, I'm just hoping that it, it, it makes more zoos realize that this is what we can do and, and that we can learn a lot from it. I'm working there. I'm working with the Melbourne Zoo in Australia. Who, um, Melbourne have realized in their current format that the, the, their elephants will not um, have the life that they deserve. So mm. they have a limited amount of space that they can they can uh, move, rebuild. So they're moving all their elephants out to where to be open rain zoo. And this is a 25 or 26 hectare site, so it's going to be over oh, wow. 50 acres. This is just for elephants. So this has the chance to create something very, very special um, for elephants. And that's so it's been a pleasure and continue to be con continually involved in that. And to think, think that elephants in that kind of space and what you can do on a, on a daily basis to uh, encourage natural feeding, foraging activities um, is, is phenomenal. It's the same with, with the UAE. Now, the UAE got elephants in from Namibia, from the wild. Uh, we probably, you know, they, they probably now, after talking to me, realize that they should have done things differently. Um, but the elephants were sold at an auction. They were supposed to be 
because of human elephant conflict. But they uh, they took the elephants into uh, UAE, and um, really the the facilities were not quite what they would need for for optimum conditions. But the good thing is they realised that and they quickly contacted me. Uh, I've been going out since November, and we're going to create something very very special there for elephants. Uh, it's a space again that will be well over forty acres. And I think that's the spaces that we're going to need to be looking for for elephants and zoos yeah. going forward. Yeah. Minimal. And, you know, what we're talking, I'm talking to the team there and I'm saying, for me, not just with elephants, but for zookeeping, you know, I, I've seen a lot of zookeeping and been part of a lot of zookeeping and will continue to be part of it. But, you know, I remember, you know, as a, as a kid and even right up to, you know, a few years ago, you'd walk by with the lions or tigers and you'd wrap your keys and the big cats would look at you or the elephants would look at you and you would trigger a response. Yeah, great. It was great. Made you feel good. Um, but it didn't do anything for the animal. Mm. And, you know, the more I got thinking about this, I said, well, here's these animals um, having an intimate moment or we don't really know what's going on in the herd or the troop or the but, but because I'm there and they're expecting some sort of a response, maybe to be let in or let out, or maybe, you know, that, that I was such a, an important part of their life for stimulation, but that is actually quite wrong. It's very, very wrong. And, and the reasons are that, you know, you're walking by and if you're the only stimulus that your animal has in its habitat, is you walking by or they're standing on the top of a tree or, mm. or, or the top of a, of a bench like a tiger waiting to see what happens for two or three hours, we're not doing our job. Yeah. So what, what what I try to preach now to to keepers around the world is you're an architect of the animal's experiences. Mm. So what that means is, Kyle, is that you go out in the morning. Okay, we take them in for a while. You create something different every day. You create landscape changes. You create something that wasn't there the next the day before. Something that makes the animal have to think differently for that on that morning. And, you know, this constant form of stimulation um, is so important. But you create so many opportunities for the animal in their environment or in their habitat that when you walk by then at any point in the day, you become insignificant. You're insignificant. Yeah. And for me, that's what good zookeeping is about. Mm. And that's what I really liked about Dublin Zoo and, and what we were able to do there because I remember going out, burying, burying food up to a meter deep in the sand, Elephants coming out and using their trunk like a mine detector, yeah. knowing there was something there, kicking up the sand, displacing a couple of ton of sand to find, so you know, a, a reward. But all the time, the mental and physical stimulation, overhead hoist feeders, rotational hoist that would drop down for 15 minutes, then one the furthest away would drop down. Then they're constantly moving for for motivation and resources, and creating this opportunity. And this is what I will be doing in the UAE, that the elephants will be called inside for an hour in the morning into a really nice indoor area. JCBs and big machinery will go outside every day and give these significant topography changes. Mm. So the elephant comes out and it's, oh, oh, okay, this wasn't here yesterday. Do I go yeah, over this hill? Wow. Do I go left? Do I go right? But immediately, Kyle, you're creating a thought process, mm. a, a, a fixing, figuring out and saying motivation for resources, a physicality, you know, a stimulation, the brain, the elephant's feet, its whole body in harmony together, working to find the resource. You know, the matriarch guiding the elephants 
given and and that society as it should be. Not that there's carrots chopped in a corner here yeah, and a piece yeah. of here, and we're doing the same crap every day in zoos all over the world. You know, become insignificant in the animal's life. Be mm-hmm. nothing to them. Then you're doing good zookeeping. When the chimp or the lion or the tiger or the primate, what when you walk by, they don't really care because this is where it's happening. Yeah. This yeah. habitat. This habitat for me gives me the choices, the opportunities to be mm. a successful, you know, herd or pack or, or troop member because all my biological refer- reference points, all my my physicality, my, my brain happens in here. I have these choices. Yeah. You know, not that they're looking for the keeper vehicle. Mm. And we can do it. And, you know, but there's so, we need to be really adventurous. Um, you know, you think of big cats, and I, I, I love the big cats. And, you know, their life is very predictable in zoos, but, you know, in, in, in the wild, big cats and many species' lives is full of disappointment. It's disappointment mm. is something they yeah. cope with very well. And what I mean is we know that the percentage of hunts for lions mm. and, and tigers and leopards is very, very low. You know, it's very low. Yeah. So, you know, can we be looking at ways of enriching them where the scent trails and that doesn't always necessarily end in a treat? But that won't bother them, and it's not a welfare mm. issue or a wellness issue because this is how they function. Yeah, you know I mean, because what I plan to do in in the UAE is that the elephants will, this is, but they will hear a hoist going down, and we'll have that they'll follow over. There may be minimal rewards, you know, but it will encourage the older females mm. to share with the younger elephants. But then, within a few minutes, uh, uh, at the furthest point away, a more generous resort would one. But it's this kind of expect the unexpected all the time. Yeah. You know, this yeah. unpredictability. And this is what we need to do for animals now in human care. You know, just be that, this dynamic resource movement, this important movement that they really don't know, yeah. you know, what's going to happen next because they really don't in the wild. So if you want to mm-hmm. be, you know, they, so now, and, and the, you know, it, it's, it's quite easy to do. Like, as I say, you know, it does take resources and what, you know, if you go in and i've seen it with the elephants because we've done it so much in dublin where we would spend a couple of hours inside in the elephant habitat massive big sand pillows for the elephants to lay and sleep on uh, but they come in and here they are whoa they're they're looking around for five ten minutes trying to figure out where the best options are mm. but i always look at them and say wow just wonder where their mind is now and it's t- it's figured animals are problems you know all animals are problem solvers yeah no you know and that's what we need to be. And, I, and I'm a big, big, big stippler on, on I, I really don't like use like using the word environmental enrichment, okay? Mm. Well, let me explain that to you, Roy. Because for me, if you use the word environmental enrichment, you're saying there's something wrong with what I designed. Mm. There is actually. So, but if you create a habitat and you've looked at the animal that you're designing for and you have a full repertoire of what it deserves. Now, I don't want to patent the back because an elephant has a mud wallow. I don't want to pat in the back because we put extra brows in and that's enrichment. I don't want to pat in the back because all of a sudden they have a dynamic landscape and everybody said, oh, it's enrichment. It's not enrichment. It's what they deserve. Mm. It's their mm. life. So give it to them. You know, give it to them and, and design appropriately and correctly. And the results are astonishing. So that's what we that's where we need to be going um, over over the next the next decades. Uh, yeah. well, we need we need to. You know, like I love America, love being in America. I've got so many friends there, but I, um, there's still such a use of Samrock, mm. you know, they, and they're, they're almost like movie sets. Yeah. You know, 
They never change, buddy. They never change. Mm. Yeah. You know, they, 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 there's no seasonal variation. But the person walks by and they say, oh, wow, doesn't that look like a little bit of Africa? Yeah, okay, great. But it, it's the same thing every day for the animal. Yeah. yeah. You know, but we're, we're having loose soil, mud, sand, branches. Like if I was designing a, 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 an area now for a chimpanzee, and if I had 100 square meters, all I would be doing was putting, I'd be putting in hundreds of brackets. When I say brackets, I mean big sleeves mm. that you can put trees into and you can take trees out. Yeah. Whenever I would be rotating trees, someday they'll come in, it's a saturated area. Someday they'll come in, it's a resort, it's, it's less resourceful. Some days they'll come in. So you're creating all these variations that mm. by having a, re a reservoir of trees and logs and branches that even though you have a limited space of five or 600 feet, square meters or whatever, by creating a, the ability to make significant changes on a daily basis for intelligent animals like elephants, like cats, like primates and apes, you know, it can be done quite easily. Yeah. And, I, and the reason why is we've done it. We've done it with our elephant house in Dublin Zoo. We've no solid fixed features inside. Mm. The brackets come in. The brackets come in. We and they, they they start at this size and they go to this size, and they can hold all different um, objects of, of, of pieces of branches, trees, and you know every two or three months we would change that, and the stimulation is phenomenal. Yeah. You know the the animals having to find a new place to make their bed or figure out where which is their most comfortable spot, and I've never ever seen any evidence of nothing but positive behavior when you do this for them. Mm. You know the freshness of it, but you know just why you know you, you create a piece of semrock like with a termite mound that it looks like, well you know it doesn't get any better for the animal after you know it doesn't really yeah. get any better. They get tired. So of it you quick. know, yeah, we got to be using our imagination. We got to be changing. We got to be realizing. You know, these animals are so special. Um, what what they need, what they need, and how to figure it out and to replicate it. There's been some very very good attempts, and there's a lot of good zoos. You know, throughout the world, Chester Zoo, San Diego, you know, but, you know many zoos are, are doing, doing great efforts. And, and, and definitely from the process of elephant or animal or big cat care since I started, like I'm I, I'm, I'm 54 now, I'm, I'm, I'm over 39 years, like getting paid looking after animals. I'm, I've been around them all my life. Yeah. So, you know, as I say, I was imprinted as, with, with my dad going in as a young boy. So I've seen very, very significant changes and uh you know there's one thing about zookeeping um i'm still you know i like to take a relatively young man i still have a lot to learn myself but that accumulated knowledge you can't be you can't beat accumulated knowledge mm. you know we all need education and educations are important and they're brilliant but for me the best zookeepers are not created in classrooms they're created yeah. in with, with learned learned behavior coil with that experience that knowledge that dedication and uh for me, that's where I want to be. That's what I want to do. I want to keep going out, keep inspiring, yeah. keep getting people to think out of the box. You know, think out of the box for it. And as I say, just see when you can set these little projects up with a smaller species and, you know, a tamarind or something else by changing around their area, doesn't take a lot of resources. And just look, look at the behaviors that you, you create. And all of a sudden you're walking by and they're not even looking at you. They're not even mm. batting an eyelid because there's too much good things happening in the in their habitat. So yeah. that is where we need to be. That's where we need to go um, for me for optimal animal conditions. Yeah, no, yeah. I totally agree. And, and 
I, I think, uh, you know, what's so interesting about your story and maybe sort of the first thing I'd like to ask you is, you know, since you've been, you know, not only your career, but you've seen a lot of like your, your, your dad's career and like such a huge transition in the industry, uh, you know, transition and change can be really hard for people. And, and we've all seen things go, go well and, and go poorly with change. And, and, you know, even something like protected contact with your elephants, like starting out free contact and moving to protected contact. How, like, how was that sort of those changes for you and, and how was it for like your coworkers and what sort of works in, in bringing those changes about? And what was that like? Yeah. Like, I mean, for me, it was, I, I couldn't wait to go into it. You know, because I realized that the, as I mentioned earlier on in our talk, that the elephants shouldn't have a consequence for you being in their behavior. Mm. But you, A is Z A in the USA, and mm. E is E A is Z A in in, uh, in Europe and Bayaza, they all came out and said no more free contact, which is great. But they didn't prepare the zoos, and they didn't support the zoos enough, in my opinion. Yeah. You know, you, you had in you had in the US, and I know because talking to people, yeah, you got a couple of years just go pee, protected contact. But there was no clear definitions expressed of what protected contact is, what a facility should look like to support free. For, um, you know, all of a sudden, you stop going in with elephants and they're throwing food over a fence. That's not protected contact. Mm. You mean that means you're not? And I even seen examples in in the US where I was at zoos and which I won't name, but where people were still putting a hook through a fence and lifting an elephant's foot. That mm. is supposed to be protected contact. But the consequence for the elephant was no different. Yeah, you still seen the hook. So, you know, it, it was difficult and there's still a long way to go. Like Europe is another few years before everybody's fully um, on board with PC, but it's, it's going to happen over the next seven years anyway. Um, I think it's 2030 that it, um, is, is when it needs to be in by. Mm. But the, the organizations need to be more supportive, creating more workshops, creating, yeah. you know, an understanding and, you know, protected contact, whether you go to do it in Dublin Zoo San Diego Zoo or a zoo in the UAE, it should all look the same. Mm -hmm. But the problem is what I see is way, way, way too many variations. Where yeah. I've seen people on one side of a fence, okay, no problem training the elephant, and that's great. But there's no protection for the keepers. But they're just and they're just thinking because they're on one side of the fence and the elephants on the other, they're not in danger. Well, that's not true. You know, but mm -hmm. so we need we need to get a global approach to protected contact and protected management that you know has a you know a, a global standard for everybody. But you know, some people just couldn't hack it. And but there was a lot of you know, there's a lot of macho men was in the elephant uh, yeah. industry, okay, in the elephant business. A lot of guys, and I know them, you know, they guys don't just sit there, have a smoke, and want to have a beer with you. They're big chunky guys and strong guys, and it made them feel good, you know, because they could control the elephant. Mm. And it was all, it was really like an extension of their ego. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I, and I know these guys, so a lot of them are friends of mine, but I've said to them, I said, evolve, change, mm -hmm. show that you can adapt, show that you actually can do it for the elephant. I mean, you know, oh, well, I'm the only one that can control this elephant. Ah, yeah. But the problem was, you see, then you took that away from them. Um, with when and they just fell asunder. Yeah. Oh, what do I do now? I'm not the how, how am I gonna manage this? I'm not the big tough guy anymore. And you took it away from them. And one of the very, very first things I did when I was managing the elephant program at Dublin, there was a couple of guys there that um, worked free contact with me. And I sat them down and I said, listen, and some of the guys were older than me, but I was their boss. And I said, guys, you know, the greatest tribute you can give yourself is to evolve. 
Yeah. Now, you know, evolve and, and, and accept that things change and, and can modernize. Now, we are, we are looking at a situation of we're bringing in elephants from the Netherlands. That's what we did. we did. We got three elephants in 2006 from Rotterdam that allowed us to start off this magnificent breeding program. Them elephants moved from free contact into protected contact. One of the elephants, which I mentioned in my book, Bernardina, um, had tried to kill people on, on, on a couple of occasions in, in free contact mm. because she was done with it. She was done with it. She was done with being dominated. She was rebelling. I, I've mm. enough of this. We moved her to Dublin Zoo and she excelled. She, she re, re, you know, reached her potential as a mother, as a matriarch, played in, she became an elephant again. Mm. She took back, she took back her brain. She was able to make the response. She was the first one then to intervene or, or advise or guide the herd or be there in the birth process. And finally, you know, when you give these animals the ability to think for themselves, mm -hmm. they really will surprise you. You give them these opportunities. And, you know, we've seen some incredible births in Dublin Zoo, nine elephant births over a decade. Every one of them all in the herd together, every herd member together, elephants investing in elephants, elephants teaching elephants. Get out of the way. We were down in the office looking at it, at them from the office uh, on a CCTV mm. situation. And I said to the guys, look, we created a sand floor, seven foot deep, sand pillows, the correct type of sand, a rounded graded sand that's like the elephants laying on marbles, no mm. sharp stones, percolates at six or seven hundred mils in you know a, a, an hour. They're not standing in their own urine and feces, their bodies, their skin, their feet are full of vitality. They're feeling good again about themselves. Mm -hmm. And they excelled when they had these opportunities in the environment around them. And that's what we done. We created something special. And to see the elephant births, um, young females being brought in, being guided in by the older females to be around this unique moment where the sights, the smells, the sounds unique to the Burton moment happen. And what's happening? It's elephants teaching elephants about their future. Mm. There's absolutely nothing Jerry can teach them about being an elephant. Yeah. There's absolutely nothing a guy with a hook standing there can teach them about being an elephant. But it's amazing if you have faith and create the right environment, the right habitats, how they excel. And thankfully, I think we have turned the corner on that. And a lot of people are finally realizing that, you know, these elephants you know, deserve it. They, they had a real injustice in our care. They, you know, we know that we didn't, uh, we, we, you know, that we gave them a bad deal. You know, the biggest yeah. animal in the zoo kept under the worst conditions. Mm. Uh, but now, thankfully, you know, I know um, Cincinnati are doing a wonderful new place. San Diego are doing a wonderful new place. You know, but, you know, then it's the Tennessee Sanctuary is doing an incredible place. I've been overworking with them guys there. Like, and when you see elephants, you know, knocking over natural trees that are in the ground and having thousands of acres to, um, to, to, to be able to, you know, give them this freedom of expression and this autonomy and this, um, all this purpose that I mentioned earlier on as we were talking is very special. So, you know, elephants in, in, in human care, it's changing. It's changing for the better. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's got to be a quality environment. And it's got to be not proper social groupings. It's got, but you know, we just need to be working together more closely to zoos and and have a have a a you know hold hands, follow a line, and let's all do it together yeah. for the sake of the elephants. Because uh, there's still too many variations in standards across the world. No, it really is. Yeah, and that's what we yeah. need to work on. Yeah, and and yeah. you you had mentioned uh, you know choice and control, and that's that's sort of like 
you know, a big topic these days about adding choice and control and, and how much benefit that can have psychologically on a lot of different animals. Do you have sort of uh, different examples uh, of, you know, introducing that sort of choice and control, uh, you know, maybe with elephants or another yeah, species? Well, I mean, or... One of the greatest examples for me for choice and control is when we, we gave the elephants 24-hour access at Dublin. They had access mm. and a choice to go in and out and make decisions for themselves. And I, I remember one time it was in June and we had a really bad electrical storm that night. I mean, a thunderstorm to beat all thunderstorms and there was electricity banging off the ground. And, and uh, I, you know, under the old days, if you knew that was coming, you just said, oh, let's lock everything in and make yeah. sure they're safe. Well, I looked back on the camera the next day, three o'clock at 3 a.m. in the morning. Thunder and lightning is belting off the ground. And there's the whole herd of elephants standing there looking up at the sky. You know, as the rain pelted down all around them. Mm. And they were totally immersed and embraced into this unusual atmospheric condition. This, mm. this unusual temperate thing that had happened. Now, they had the choice to go into their house. But they were so in touch with what was going on. As they got really soaking wet outside, they went off them to start swimming the pool. And they played in the pool. Social cohesion family bonds being strengthened for an hour after after that thunderstorm. And then that's what really epitomized me. Now, that's choice and control. Them elephants had a choice to stay in the you know the warm house with their, their nice sandy bed and, and everything there, but they wanted to be outside with this unique moment as the environment changed around them. So for me, that's what choice and opportunity is about. You know, when the animal can make that decision, and the mm. elephants clearly told showed me that night we don't care about the thunder and lightning. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It invoked a whole series of behaviors that I, um, I started at three o'clock and at 20 past five in the morning, they were still having the benefits of that thunderstorm. What that was, they had within the, they swam and played in the pool for an hour, hour and a half after the rain. They then come out and they exfoliated their skin. Then they went into the mud wallows. Then they went off scratching. All these species specific appropriate behaviors happened because we gave them choice and control because mm -hmm. we allowed them to do that so you know this is and particularly with the other great apes as well and like, we have we've got you know see that we, we have that wonderful habitat at dublin zoo for for uh gorillas and you know it was amazing when they get out there it's got valleys and it's got some ridges and they can wade into water up to their chest and and it, when we when we let them out for the first time and gave them access and again like i have a beautiful picture of, of a uh, I'll, I'll try to send it to you. I'll, mm. I'll find it on my phone. And it's, I came around at 7 o'clock one morning and I looked up at the tree and little Mayani, and it was a young gorilla and she's up there and it's almost like she's dancing in the tree. Uh, no visitors, no people in, just me and her. And I looked up. All the other elephants were, or excuse me, gorillas were in the house. And she was, and she's only three years old and she, I'm going out to play in the trees. She had that choice and that confidence. Mm. And this, I mean a tree that was you know, 60, 70 feet up and she was there and she wanted to be out there at seven o'clock in the morning alone as she kind of playing and 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 and, and doing twists and turns in the tree. It was a beautiful moment. I just I wonder is her family around, but it was that confidence she had in that environment, in that mm. habitat to get out there and do it. And 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 she didn't care what I had to offer. She just looked at me and off she went and continued her play. Where again, this is why you know it was such a beautiful moment. So, you know, by 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 creating these special areas, these special opportunities is the way forward for, for animal mm -hmm. welfare. You know, this is uh, and wellness and it's exciting. It's exciting, but you know, we need a lot more animal people at the table when we're designing. This is one of the biggest problems that I 
I've faced. I said, you know, put the guys that with a lot of experience, um, the good animal guys around the table to talk about the, the, uh, the, the what you know how they see it. And this is what you know we had that was really good in Dublin. Our, our director, Leo Ustavagel, brought in people, brought in architects. Of course, you need that for the fine detail. Look, but it was always about the animal. We looked at the elephant, we looked at the gorilla, we looked at the big cats, we looked at this. How do they actually live in the wild? Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. is your guiding force. The first people you should talk to is the people that studied them in the field. So they're yeah. the first people you should talk to in a design process. Mm-hmm. What do you see? How could you see us re- replicating that? Or what's the most important things that you've seen in the wild that we can bring into elephants or animals or lions in human care, any species? They're the first people. So it has to be a combination of the right people. Um, yeah, so like as I say, it's exciting. I think I think our, our, the zoo, the zoos as, uh, as organizations are changing, I think every zoo now has to be a conservation body that happens to run a zoo, not a zoo that's slightly involved in conservation. Mm-hmm. It's got, you know, I'd love to see zoos um, managing much larger parts of the natural range countries. I think over the next decade or 20 years, that's what we're going to have to see that the Dublin zoos and the Chester zoos and all the big zoos. Um, you know, yeah, we've got 10,000 of the acres of the Brazilian rainforest that we specifically manage. That mm-hmm. manages the families, the villages, the, you know, the whole ecosystem, how it's cared for. So, you know, a lot of the zoos really need to step up to the plate in conservation. Yeah. Uh, and that's where we, you know, it, you got to be a little bit better than just signing a check every year and saying, here's your check, off mm-hmm. you go. Thanks. We feel good now. I'm putting a, putting a sticker up in front of the, the wall to say, oh, we gave 10,000 to such and such. A... Yeah, of course it's important. Of course it's helpful. But, you know, how much does it do? So, you know, we, we need to take ownership. We yeah. need to take ownership. Yeah. Um, and, and, and get out there and, and be far more progressive. Like imagine going into a little village somewhere and in South America or in Africa, you're getting the, getting the kids there to make arts and crafts, sell them in your zoo shop, create mm. revenue, bring them involved, bring them on yeah. a journey with you. You know, do that, the real conservation you know, efforts like that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's so much more we can do, but I'm, it, I am greatly optimistic for the future. Yeah, you know, I no, think- absolutely. I think, uh, you know, it, like the way we're sort of approaching animal welfare now is the way we're going to have to start approaching, you know, conservation. Like we're, we're really uh, focusing solely on the animal with animal welfare and sort of going, going above and beyond. It's not just about, you know, keeping the animal alive when, and it's about making them thrive. And it's the same thing with conservation, as you mentioned. It's not just about writing a check every year. It's about actually making sure that that, money or that assistance or whatever you're doing is actually making a difference exactly exactly it's that accountability that responsibility that's exactly where we need to be and there is some zoos doing a hell of a job of it like we got to be mm. honest there is yeah you know, there is some zoos but uh it just needs a more global approach and then you know and it needs a more you know government approach you know the, the zoo should be working with their own governments in their own countries for for greater support to be helping you know, home-based conservation as well like, i mean everybody always assumes that you know oh, conservation happens over in africa or far away there's so many meaningful projects you know that happen on your doorstep you know mm-hmm. and, and that the zoos need to need to be identifying that first because you know everything i think conservation should start at home of course we need to help at, um parts of the world but you know dublin zoo has a 10-year strategy plan now it's just come out um on conservation and our new the new, the new director there christoph yeah he's very much conservationally orientated mm. and i think you know certainly the contributions will be very significant over over the next few years and you know, for me then that's what i want to get out continue doing my work globally 
you know, continuing, you know, helping elephants anywhere I can, keepers, staff, uh, I'm incredibly passionate about it. I'll talk about elephants all day long <laughs> and, uh, you know, try to make a difference where I can. And we'll get there. We will get there. And I yeah. think a lot of zoos you'll probably see though over the next decade or so either going over elephants or up in the game. But there mm. can be no more mediocre. There can be no more acceptance of, yeah. of mediocre. These animals don't deserve it. The people that come to see them don't deserve it. There's no value in an animal having a bankrupt lifestyle in, in your in mm. your zoo. If actually it's quite sad. So the exciting projects that are happening for uh, animals around the world, as I say, Melbourne, UAE, Howlets, which look enough, I'm 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 involved and probably three of the biggest and most significant ones at the moment. Gives me a chance to kind of create a few. I you know I hate this word though, but we have best practice. Well, forget about best practice. Go way beyond best practice. Mm-hmm. Go way beyond it. Yeah. You know, if you want to. If you want to set your uh, if you want to set your your goal at best practice, well, get off my team. We need to go beyond that. Yeah, well, and so, you're just going to end up redoing it in a few years anyway, because that's not going to be best practice anymore. You got to keep no, uh, keep yeah. ahead, or you're just going to be catching up. Keep pushing the boundaries of yeah. it. You know, the visitor experience, of course, is very important. But um, your conservation, your education, we know all that. We know the cliches with every zoo, and it's right though. But you know, it's thinking out of the box. This thinking out of the mm-hmm. box of now creating like what I t- what I touched on earlier on, and these dynamic habitats and landscapes co- tied in with genuine conservation, genuine conservation, not just token conservation. That you're responsible for villages, you're bringing kids over from these countries to have internships in your zoo or mm. or sponsored college degrees or whatever the case we can. We, we we've got to take that responsibility and and you know do do good stuff. And we are. Wait, what? As I say. Some zoos are doing it, but we need a much more global approach to it. Yeah, I absolutely agree. So uh, maybe we could talk a little bit about your book. Um, uh, you know, the, it sounds like they're, you're you're super busy. You're you're uh, doing a ton of great work all around the world with uh, you know global elephant care. Your your consultancy. What made you sort of want to write a book? Because I'm sure it wasn't because you were sitting at home bored. So what? No, uh... that's for sure. But you know, actually, to be honest, Carly, what happened was there's a bu- there's a publisher company here we have we've had a very successful tv show here in ireland mm. called the zoo and that uh, and i was kind of the, the face of the zoo program for many years here which was great and the one thing about that zoo program um what really brought it into the hearts of irish people was because our director dan leo Ustavagel, also said this he said it's not going to be all about cute baby animals just popping out and how happy they are blah, blah, blah. he said it's going to be about a true reflection of zoo life mm. and we we showed the the the, the macaque carrying her dead baby there around for two days because she you know, didn't want to let go. We showed a lioness Sheila, 23 years old, being euthanized live on the show. But we explained the reasons why we you know the ethics of it, the reasons why we got to that decision. Mm. So people people would stop me in the street and say it's a whole emotional roller coaster ride watching that TV show. Mm. But we didn't have any problems with animal rights or anything like it because we said have a look at the zoo TV program. We just showed what happens. It was a total account of accurate zoo life. I mean, every people ask what's the mortality rate in the zoo? Well, it's a hundred percent. Everything dies at some point, but yeah. it's how you manage it in between. But it's all there was a lot of interest there. From me, from the media, from that era of, of, of the zoo, and I've done a lot of stuff. And but then I just Gill Books in Ireland contacted me, said to me, Can we meet up with you? I went to a hotel with them in Dublin. They said, Have you ever taught a writing a book? 
I said, well, I did, but I was kind of, kind of wait till I was a little bit older, you know, and maybe before as I was in, sitting in me rocking chair at yeah. home. <laughs> and they said, no, listen, we've followed your career on the TV and your your, your global journeys. And uh, we actually think now is the time for you because you, you've got such appeal and everybody knows you and everybody loves listening to your passion and talking to you. Would you consider it? I said, okay. And then they explained how it would happen. And like, it wasn't like I, me sitting down with a pen or a typewriter or, or on a laptop or anything like that. Um, I was, I, they, they, they kind of told me what sections to look at, you know, my early life. Mm. I, I was a, I was a very successful amateur boxer too. I thought I was Irish mm. champion boxer. And uh, there was some really good, interesting stories in it. So, but basically I'd be sitting on a plane, like I'd be off on a plane going to, to the UAE or going to uh, some faraway destination. And as things came into my head, I would constantly make the voice files. Oh yeah. And I, and I would send them on then to the girl that was, was effectively the ghostwriter. And then when I'd be home, we would, we would sit there for a few hours and go through it. And she said, it's so important that it sounds like you read it and you, you can see your or hear yourself. Mm. It's gotta be coming from you. And everybody was just wanting to know about the story of my life. Um, about my life at Dublin Zoo, about my global, what I'm doing with my company to help elephants. And it was huge interest. So we, we had the book launch last Thursday and the pre-orders um, have been very significant. Uh, 85 distributors worldwide on ebook. And, oh, you know, wow. it's just it, it's just the story of, of an, you know, a kid from uh, inner city in Dublin here that, you know, seen his life evolving through animals. And, uh, some magical memories of, of animals living in the house with me. And, mm. uh, but then I, you know, it's got a really good message in it too, because I talk about hand rearing and what, what, what it, we used to do a lot of it years ago, but how, how negative it can be for an animal, mm. you know, and, uh, the consequences of, you know, a chimp that's not mixed in when it's young enough to the group can spend a life on its own because it doesn't have chimp language. And, you know, so the, it's a real, it's really good, honest, um, tales from, from the heart and, and the future of zoos and, and what we need to do, like are the subjects we just spoke about. So there's a lot of people are, are, are loving it. And uh, I've, I've just done hundreds of interviews over the last couple of days. And people are from all around the world have contacted me and said, wow, the book is fantastic. It's such a, a great story from a, you know, a, a true animal person's life. It's never going to be a scientific book. That was never the plan. Mm. It was about a memoir and a bit of a manifesto for the future. So that's why I'm so glad I done it. And today I was in a shopping mall in Dublin and I'm doing a book signing. And there was probably in the region of a hundred kids, probably over the course of the day from say seven up to 17, you know, leave it to college, wanting to know how to be about a zookeeper, wanting mm. to know what they could do better, you know? And, and when I sat there, even the girl from the book company, she said, how do you keep this energy going? I said, well, I said, I love talking about animals, mm-hmm. conservation, what we can do to save and help our world. If, if two or three of them kids today have done something that I've suggested, well, then that's a job well done. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, I had to look at them and I, uh, they, there were so many and I said, they're the future. So if I can influence them positively, well, then I'm doing some good in this world. I care about the world. I care about animals. I care about conservation, and uh, the passion is there. As I say, it doesn't matter to me if I'm standing in front of ten five-year-old kids, or the government ministers, or the president of Ireland, or over in the U.S. doing the Barrow Lecture Series. I speak with the same passion because I want to make a difference, and I believe when we all work together, we can make a difference.
Mm. Yeah, and I'm sure it was uh, it was an incredible experience to sort of uh, actually sit down for an extended period of time and like look back at your career and uh, think because there's when you're just going through it, you know, you don't really remember particular stories or like you're like, oh yeah, like uh, I remember yeah. that or you know specific. Is there a sort of one that you that you really uh, you know like would like to highlight as far as like a great success or a great, you know, challenge in your no, career. That, that, or that's one that's depicted really well in the book, which is, you know, you're right. And exactly what you're saying. Um, it invokes incredible memories and, and, and some catastrophic things that I wish had never happened. And mm. like, you know, obviously Asha, yeah, I mentioned Asha in the book and um, she's the first elephant born at Dublin zoo after the free contact era. And, and when she, was born and she stumbled to the sand floor, that beautiful fluffy sand floor and all the amniotic fluid just disappearing. Mm. And as she stood up and she was like somebody that had come out of a bar for it with too many beers <laughs> as she tried to get her footing. But after two and a half minutes, she was standing on this warm, dry sand floor mm. with, her, with her mom and her aunt around her as they, they, Blooded her with vocalizations unique to that moment and welcomed her into the herd. I said, wow, look what we've done. Mm. Look what we've done here for these animals. And particularly Bernadina, who I mentioned earlier, an elephant that um, in, in, in the previous zoo, they used to have to chain her up before they could go in with the other elephants because she had come that dangerous. Mm. And she finally had freedom, freedom to be a mother, freedom of expression, freedom of control over the situation. It was her, her baby and everything was going to be okay. So, you know, it was, for me, that was a fabulous moment. And again, you know, I've seen, like, thankfully now it would never happen, but I remember in the nineties too, then one time I was a young keeper and we were moving a rhino out of the zoo. It was going off a five-year-old female, Dorothy. And of course I didn't have control over them things in them days, but uh, it was before I was in a kind of senior management position, but she was being loaded onto a truck um, with a guy and he was a bit heavy handed. And But anyway, she got really panicky and, and she started to disintegrate the side of the truck. She got so mm. freaked out. This was two o'clock in the day and there was people walking by behind me in the zoo. It was a horrible, horrible situation. Mm. But anyway, she managed to get through the side of the truck. But I was standing, I was there with, with, with the firearm as part of the response um, in case there was any issue. And I, I could see, I just said, please, this is not happening. There was guys climbing trees, people jumping into the lake to get out of the way. And I had to stand there as this rhino charged at me at full. And just as she got to me, she dropped her head and I had to put a, put a bullet right between her two eyes. It killed me. It was gut-wrenching. Yeah. It was heartbreaking. Even to this day, I struggle with it. But, you know, that was your job in the zoo. So it was such a, a variation of emotions and, and, and feelings. Um, I never wanted to do it, but I understand, you know, every zoo has to have an escape policy. Mm. Thankfully, that, uh, thankfully, now we have crates that come in many months in advance and that rhinos are trained mm. and we've mm. learned from that. And uh, we've learned from many, many of the issues. And, you know, any good zoo... Uh, you need to you know, be prepared for the resources and 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 to have it right and uh, you know have the animals that are given that opportunity to express themselves and and behave and be trained and be given the opportunity to do it right and yeah so in the book the book is uh there's some amazing stories as i say of animals i've had at home and but you know i i emphasize 
uh, you know, the importance of not hand rearing now. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it was cute and it was great to have a chimpanzee living in your home. But with Lucy, you see the difference with Lucy. When I said to the director then, Lucy the chimp, I said, Leo, if you let me do this, I promise I'll do this right. I, I want her to put her in there because I want to get her back in with that chimp troop. And mm. I did. And I got, I more than got her back in. I got her in functioning as a chimpanzee mm-hmm. because I used to bring her home and bring her into the zoo every day. And when I'd be feeding the other chimps, she'd hear the sights, sounds, vocalizations. There was a plan and a strategy um, to make sure this happened. So, yeah, it, it, it's been a great privilege to do the book. You know, it's been a great, and the, the response from people, the reviews it's getting, you know, of, of, of the trials of, Trials and tribulations, the birth, the deaths, and and the sadness and the happiness of of zoo life. But ultimately, you know, it's a really positive book for the future. It really depicts how well a zoo can come on when it's properly resourced and and looked after, and the important part it can play in society and um, in the community and and thriving. So, it's been an honor, and um, I'm just so glad I did it. Now, it's been a busy week, and I've got another yeah. really busy week ahead with media, but. You live in the moment, you enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And as I said, if I could influence positively the next generation to, to, to make this world a better place for them, for their future and for the animals around us, well, it'll be a job well done. Yeah, no, that's that's amazing. And uh, yeah, I recommend everybody you know that's listening to, to check out the book, uh, Raised by the Zoo. I'll link to it uh, in the show notes uh, for everybody to check out. It sounds uh, fantastic. I'm super excited to, to read it. It sounds like it's, uh, you know, coming from a, an awesome place and you got some some fantastic stories and, uh, you know, are doing a lot to sort of move the industry ahead, which is absolutely amazing. So uh, I, even though you have had hundreds of interviews, I, I've, I very much appreciate uh, us being one of them. So I, I thank you so much for uh, for giving us your time. So Kyle, it's been an absolute, it's an absolute pleasure. As I say, um, you can see. It's it's the evening time here now in Ireland. I I could talk for hours and hours still because when you're passionate about something, yeah. it's easy. And you know, let let's all work together and let's make a difference. And you know, to care about your local zoo, support your local zoo. And you know, the lot of zoos are doing a lot of good work, and 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 they need our help and, and support. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. And uh, maybe when things settle down with the book, we'll be able to do another another podcast because I think there's much more we can uh, we can talk about for sure. So you, you can be guaranteed of that, buddy. It'd be my pleasure. There's so much more we can talk about, but I think we've got a good hour in there. So hopefully, uh, yeah, let's come back and do it. You know, yeah. I and mean, we, I'd love that we could do, we could maybe do a question and answer sometime for people. I get a lot of people that want to yeah. ask questions too. So let's do it. Count me in. Yeah, I'll be there. that would be, that'd be fantastic. Well, uh, thanks again, Jerry, uh, so much for coming on. I, I really appreciate it. And, uh, to everybody listening, uh, check out the book. I'll link to it uh, in the show notes and until next time, everybody. We hope you enjoyed that episode of the Wild Enrichment Podcast. If you want to follow us on social media, you can find us at Wild Enrichment on Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest. If you want to learn more about Wild Enrichment and see some of our great resources, check out www.wildenrichment.com. Also, if you wish to support Wild Enrichment, check out our Patreon. Again, thank you so much for listening. Until next time. Wild Enrichment is independently owned and claims no affiliation to any zoo, aquarium, or other animal care institutions. All of the information and opinions communicated through this podcast, wildenrichment.com, and affiliated social media accounts are based on my own opinions and experiences and are not in any way reflective of the opinions of my employers past or present. Thank you. Thank you.